0: Only book knowledge, but if people start to have uh, some strong experiences in their meditation practice, uh, suddenly oh I'm enlightened, <laughs> I come running up and think I saw the light, you know, something like this, and, I'll, and the teacher will say no, not quite yet, you know, please note that, and please, oh no, I don't have to do that anymore, I'm okay now, you know, something like this, so faith gets out of balance. Uh, wisdom. You wouldn't think the wisdom could get out of the balance. Uh, but the type of wisdom that they're talking about here is similar to the person that has a lot of uh, book knowledge about the practice. Uh, suddenly they become a little very haughty. You know, oh yes, I know about them. You know, and I'll be telling everyone, everywhere, anyone that wants to know from, this, you know, from the garbage man down the street, to their best friend, constantly. You know, so that gets out of balance as well. You know The wisdom factor. If they've had some inside experience. Uh, in Burma, one of the things I noticed in Burma, which drove me crazy, and I avoided it as much as I possibly could, was that people would line up outside the interview room and discuss these supposed insights that they had in the meditation. And I said, What is going on here? You know? Oh, yes, I experienced uh, you know, this insight and that insight. And, and it was all a lot of baloney a lot of the time. But because they'd read a lot and because they had had some little experience as well, um, you know, it was like showing off to some degree so wisdom gets out of sync as well and the mind just gets caught up in the discursive thinking analytical thinking and is not able to penetrate and dive deep into the nature of phenomena if you like we we all of us as meditators experience that to some degree there is actually a stage that arises in the practice and I remember it well uh, where this does happen to people uh, where you're constantly, and it's not such a bad thing really where you're constantly thinking about Dhamma you know when I was a young man when uh um, was a little clearer than I am now as a senior citizen um, I would travel through India a lot from retreat to this retreat to that retreat and on the train I can remember sitting on the steps of the carriage as you can do in India You know, you can do anything in India. And just thinking about the dharma. Ideas, thoughts, reflections coming in constantly. And this is one of the stages that arises in the meditative experience. These days I think about my aches and pains and... (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) A little bit joking. I think, oh, dukkha. (laughs) So those get out of balance and we need to be able to bring them back into balance by being encouraged by the teacher to keep noting and saying in a gentle way some of the Burmese teachers can be quite severe and they'll just say, no, that's not correct (laughs) keep noting, try harder Fortunately, my teacher was very soft and he would say, Oh, Graham, I think you're probably not on the right path here. Please try it this way. Yes, I do. You know, something like that. Until he got you back on the path with that one. Yeah.
1: It's been 15 minutes.
0: Uh, the other two are... Just
1: simply be present.
0: Energy, um, and concentration. And if there you is a great can story no longer sit that many mindfully, adjust your and posture his and the uh, sitting meditation, meditation, while meditation while
1: trying to continue
0: was, uh, a to young man, be mindful and he came from, as much as you can. Uh, once otherwise, again, continue. Uh, a very wealthy family, not so far from where the Buddha was at the time. But he had an aspiration or an inspiration after hearing the Buddha's teachings that he wanted to become a monk. And his family tried to persuade him not to do this. Your job is to uh, stay and become king and to look after the um, social security of the uh, kingdom. But he didn't want to do that. Somewhat like Shantideva, I guess, that I talked about the other night. But he said, no, I want to go. And he heard the Buddha, he was inspired by the teachings, and he wanted to attain to uh, the highest peace and happiness. The Buddha advised him to do walking meditation. You know, because of the Buddha's uh, power, if you like, power of mind, he could determine uh, which particular practice was uh, pertinent for a person, which was. he could look into the mind and see what's the personality of that person and he could determine uh, what was going to be the most suitable of practices actually uh... when i became a young monk at twenty three um, in india in uh, Budgaya, i went to stay i had an introductory letter to from england from the temple in L- uh, london and. Um, to the abbot of this temple and who I've told you about and he uh, he said, oh you want to meditate? Sure, he said, yeah, meditation is pretty good it's good, I'll try it one day He's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> a very cool character uh, He said, I'll get you a meditation teacher uh, I think I've told you that and here is, uh, absolutely wonderful, his name was Vivekananda um, Vivekananda, and he was four foot nothing, but feisty, really feisty, strong, vibrant person, you know, strong and vibrant sort of person, but in his way soft. So I was ordained, and um, okay, now we're going to start to meditate, and so there are about 50 months, everyone had come for this ordination, the whole hall was filled. And he said to me, "I'm sitting there nervously, trying to keep my robes up. You know, is this string going to come apart? Because you don't wear any undies as a, as a monk, you know." And he said, "I want you to walk across the f- in front of everybody." I said, "You want me to do what? Walk across? The- I can't do that. What does something happen?" He said, "I oh, just please walk." And I had to walk across back and forth about half a dozen times, and. I said, why did you do that? And he said, oh, and he said, and th- then he said, can you just look at me? And so I looked at him, Look me in the face, he said. And I looked at him, he's staring at me like this. I said, what are you doing that for? You know, it's very embarrassing, you know, all these monks and these tiny little, well, I was much taller than them, of course, but still I felt a little embarrassed. He said, well, I can tell um, and this is all written down, Due to the expertise of the meditation teachers and the monks, they can tell the traits or the trait. How do you say that here in American? A trait or trait? The personality of the person, the character. Trait. 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 Yep. Okay. The trait of the person is: Are you an angry the person? Sound are you of you a lazy bell. person? Are you, a See if person? you can Do you have those propensities? Or how to be
1: with the experience of
0: choose hearing? Choose the meditation subject. Which is Use a vibration. Sushi. It's quite remarkable that, that this can happen. And apparently, according to the scriptures and what the monks were telling me, the Buddha had the ultimate power of mind and he could instantly tell what was suitable for a yogi you know, to meditate. Um, we don't have that luxury so much these days, and everything's pretty much the same. But he might say, if you're an angry person or greedy person, they might give you loving kindness for a month or whatever, for example. I'm not too sure I should tell you what my trait was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, letting the cat out of the bag. (laughs) I walked heavily. (laughs) and <laughs> so that said oh, am a little bit of an angry person. <laughs> open your eyes. <laughs> so I said, mm, right. And mindfully on.
1: adjust <laughs> your posture. <laughs> that's being aware of seeing, being aware of the sensations to be to be as you move. To
0: do it all. And I rather like that, don't you? That's Mindfulness nice. very personal. does not need
1: to end with personal. the sound of the bell.
0: Nowadays, of course, you know, because of But you're welcome to sit you know, to do that a
1: while longer.
0: Sona, Venerable Sona. Sorry. Look, he gave me the Mahasi Sahidal method. Exactly. Yeah, that's what he taught. He was a Mahasi teacher. Yeah. I didn't know at that time there were other practices, quite honestly. I'd never heard about anything else. So that's all I knew. So he gave me that.
1: Yeah.
0: It seemed to work. Not totally, but a little bit. At least some benefit is coming from it. The Buddha gave Sona walking meditation as his main object. And so uh, he said to uh, Sona, or the instructor said to Sona, please go and continue walking and do walking meditation. And Sona went out into the forest somewhere. Close to the monastery, and he started walking back and forth and back and forth. And he was walking on a path that was uh, not very smooth; it had a lot of pebbles and rocks. And uh, but he was a very determined person. He'd made an an aspiration in his mind uh, that he wanted to see how this was going to go if he put in maha effort, good effort. And he kept walking. He kept walking. And the monks, each day, he walked and walked and walked. Each day, some of the monks, you know, some of the monks started going past the path and seeing that there was blood on the stones, and they looked at Sona's feet, and he had calluses and boils and all kinds of things. So they reported this to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, "Oh, you know, it's, I'm sure I don't know exactly what he said, but you can imagine him <laughs> saying, you know, something's not working here.'" And so he came along to Sona and he said, "Sona, yes, Lord." he said that's how they used to refer to the Buddha yes Lord and I said "Sana, in your former life as a prince did you play the lute yes Lord I did he said were you good at playing the lute yes Lord I was very good and he said now if you want the lute to sound beautiful uh, do you need the strings to be slack?" no Lord do you want them to be tight no Lord how do you want them? he said I want them to be in the middle I want them to be just right so I can pluck the most beautiful sound he said Sona just as you would be tuning the lute is how to do the meditation practice and I love that story and because of his understanding of tuning the lute instantly he could tune his meditation uh, through the extremes of too much uh, of too much energy and not enough concentration and vice versa. And so within a short period of time, as everyone did in those days, he became an arahant etc etc. Et and the story goes on. But it's a beautiful story, isn't it? Uh, of this young monk. And this is how we need to balance our practice. Our balance needs to be, done with uh, common sense, really. And I think we can know for ourselves when our practice is going to extremes, whether we're too lazy, not enough energy, whether we're trying too hard and having too much concentration, because if there's too much concentration, surprisingly enough, uh, the mind can sink in on itself and become very sleepy and dull. If there's too much energy, we can become restless and agitated. And we don't want to do the practice anymore. It's too hard for us to do it. We can't concentrate on anything. If there's not enough energy, once again the mind can become very lazy and dull and doesn't want to note, doesn't want to be mindful of the... uh, Continuing flow or the continuous flow of phenomena that comes into the mind and body process that we can become aware of. Um, So we need to get the balance between concentration and energy, energy and concentration. And there's various uh, techniques and methods uh, that can be used uh, over a period of time in practice that can help help us do that. So the story of Sona I think is very significant Uh, and from people's reports today that's why I wanted to mention it so you will get a feeling for the balance that's necessary if we are to practice uh, without tiring. Um, If there's too much effort we start to get tired and so we have to relax a little bit if we're making too, uh, too much effort we need to quicken the walking a bit if there's not enough effort well, then maybe we've got to slow the walking down a little bit and walk more slowly so we can build up the concentration there's all these ways of balancing you know, many ways of balancing the indriya, these uh, controlling faculties of course the best way Is with mindfulness. Yeah, mindfulness is the sweep. Mindfulness is the steer person. Mindfulness is the controller, if you like, although it doesn't really control. But by dint of its uh, not getting out of a factor that does not get out of balance, it can control faith and energy, uh, faith and wisdom, and it can control the. uh, Energy and uh, concentration, and so the boat, the surf boat or the kayak, smoothly can ride the wave and end up on the beach at Outrigger Canoe Club, in, a <laughs> in an abanic <abandoned> state. <laughs> <laughs> Is that okay for you? Does that it's it's not long enough, but it'll be enough for tonight. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out to you. I like, often in these talks, um, you know, to not be totally formal in a talk, but to address some of the issues that have been coming up in people's practice a little bit. Uh, Sometimes, for example, with the controlling faculties, we may not talk about it. For a few nights, but the hindrances, of course, that we discussed this morning, is something that needs to be discussed quite early in practice, um, because they can really block the practice. As you get, as our train gets moving, enough coals in the tender. You know, we want the train to go along smoothly. This is when the controlling faculties come into play, and need to be adjusted from time to time so you can reach the goal quite easily. So try to keep in mind, to some degree, if you can, the story of sona, the venerable sona. And when things are quite difficult for you in meditation, which sometimes they are, then you can keep that story in mind and uh... when i start to see blisters and blood on the feet and then i'll come running <laughs> mm-hmm. that's coming down i think mm-hmm. is that ok mm-hmm. This should be. Like, I mean, yeah. So I'd like to. Na- oh, uh, no, no good. Is that good?
1: Perfect.
0: That would be not a good look for the anchor man. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I'm a yogi. <laughs> no one's at home. <laughs> is that alright? we good? Okay. Action. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to talk a little about uh, satipatthana and the um, etymology of the word, if you like. Uh, the Pali term satipatthana is generally rendered as the four foundations of mindfulness, and that's the most common. Sometimes the four focuses, sometimes the four applications, sometimes the four uh, references. <coughs> now this uh, understanding of the f- and remembering of the four foundations of mindfulness is crucial in meditation practice. It's something that you should never tire of hearing about because it's really the heart of the Buddhist teachings. It's really the depth of the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist teachings because it points out uh, the way that we can overcome suffering in our life uh, by exercising ourselves in this manner, by taking these four foundations of mindfulness and um, looking at the the, uh, various uh, criteria that's involved in it. That's how we can come out. Um, and as mentioned last night we had a quite a long discussion on the, the benefits the purification of the mind in other words the uh, eradication if you like of the root causes of suffering greed, hatred and delusion that's uh, one of the benefits the overcoming of sorrow and lament, um, lamentations so not um, uh, reacting so much in the mind to uh, grief and loss etc etc we learn how to be in the middle with all of that Now another interesting one here, they give us the benefit and I'm sure you'll be all happy to hear this and probably will give you a lot of determination to practice. It says, uh, the ending of physical pain and mental distress. The ending of physical pain and mental distress. Is that possible? Good question, huh? Well, if you practice like the Venerable Sona, you'll be able to sort that one out for yourself. But the Buddha does say that through the Insight Meditation practice, Sathipatthana practice, uh, that at a point in the practice, physical pain and mental distress are removed from the mind. Even for a moment, this can happen. And when one is more fully enlightened, in uh, the mental defilements or the mental afflictions don't arise anymore. But along the way, uh, we can experience the ending of physical suffering from going from great physical suffering uh, to uh, absolute, sublime and blissful states of mind where all suffering is gone from the body. Uh, It may reoccur again, but at least there will be some inkling that is possible to remove physical suffering, suffering and mental suffering. Now, the mental suffering is interesting because, when you think about the story of the Buddha, it said that uh, three months before he was going to what they say in Buddhism, enter parinibbana, but to use a common term, he was going to pass away, if you like, or die. He knew this, of course, because of his psychic powers. He also knew the way uh, that his death would come about. Um, It was thought in those days in India, and in this present day as well, that if you offered uh, food to a monk, you would accrue, especially someone of the status of the Buddha, that you would accrue great merit uh, great merit. Great merits means you would develop uh, great generosity and have a uh, um, easier time in your next life or in your meditation practice or something like this. We won't go into all of that, but that's what they think. There was a butcher, apparently, that the Buddha was going to be passing by on his way to uh, to the uh, place where he was going to die, uh, Kusinaga, and He knew that the butcher was going to offer him some uh, meat. He also knew that the butcher was going to offer him meat that was soiled. Uh, And it said that he knew that he would die from food poisoning. But he accepted the meat anyway, because he did not want to uh, disappoint the butcher, which was a great Mahadana, you know, great generosity on the Buddha's part. And, uh, don't ask me to understand this. he's the Buddha, not me. And so when the Buddha had eaten this meal and he started to become uh, violently ill, um, he lay down underneath the sal trees and he knew this was going to be his last uh, uh, resting place he lay on his right side and his attendant Ananda he said Lord are you in pain he said Ananda there is physical pain but my mind is free there is physical pain but my mind is free and I thought that's a wonderful story he's saying that we can live in the world with all its ups and downs and all the uh, situations that we that uh, beset us uh, with old age sickness and death but our minds can be free our minds cannot have physical can uh, cannot have distress and this is what the Buddha was pointing out So even if we're a young person you know there's still physical pain but is your mind okay with it all this is the benefit of mindfulness meditation, uh, because you understand the nature of things more. You know that this is actually how it is. That there's going to be uh, old age, sickness, and death. You know it's not something that is not new. Every, it will happen to everybody. Uh, then the mind, is through the meditative attainments, uh, can stay in the middle with the whole situation. And that's the story of the Buddha and what they're referring here to as a freedom from mental distress. And no condition could arise that would cause the wobble in the mind that happens to us. So. I don't know if we're going to get to all this. (laughs) I keep going off on these little tangents. Is that interesting for you? I don't know. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> so Satipatthana. Um, the full meaning can be better understood by breaking it up into a compound, uh, uh, breaking up the compound word into parts and examine them. Sati plus patana, or sati, 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 s a t i, sati, sati uh, plus pa plus tana. The root word sati means to remember but as a mental factor it signifies more than that. If, when we talk about remembering it doesn't mean to remember about past life or past memories. It means, this is extremely important and I'd like you to practice this. It means to remember when the mind has gone, the attention has gone off the object. That's what it means with remember. Has your mind gone off? And can you remember that it has gone off? And can you remember where it's gone? And can you bring it back to the object again? So in that sense it means remembering. To remember to come back. To remember when it's gone off. But it also has uh, the characteristics of of presence of mind. They also refer to it as presence of mind, being in the present moment. Um, They use all kinds of attentiveness to the present moment object. Um, Alertness, heedfulness, wakefulness. All of these uh, terms come into the definition of sati, of mindfulness. Sati, So what what Sati, what that means is that you can see by just those four that they're all very similar or the same but they're all trying to encourage us to remember when we've gone off the object and come back to the present moment object. Presence of mind, uh, attentiveness to the present moment, um, alertness, wakefulness, heedfulness. And all of this is what's required in meditation practice, you know, to get us to the point where we can see what's happening in the present moment. Patana, uh, on the other hand, means uh, the close or firm or steadfast establishment or application or setting up. the close, firm, steadfast establishment or application or setting up of mindfulness so Satipatthana uh, when you bring the two words together means close presence of mind on the present moment object which is what we're trying to achieve here to get that close establishment of mindfulness from moment to moment from moment to moment Are you okay with that? Pretty hard to do, isn't it? Hmm? But as my lovely little abbot said, many lifetimes, don't worry. <laughs> as long as you're aware of the situation, it's okay. <laughs> now, mindfulness has a number of um, characteristics. Uh, when, when it's uh, fully functioning, functioning, when it's right on the spot it has the characteristic of non-superficiality uh, and it has the characteristic of not floating away from the object in other words it can stay right on top and cover, fixed to the object that we're experiencing so non, non-superficiality non you know the side oars I don't want to be too uh, heavy with this but the side oars would always be Saying to you in Burma, uh, please be more precise. Please be more precise. I think they were saying, "Please." I'm not actually sure because I didn't speak Burmese, but they were. They were saying, "Please be precise." You know, this was their main message: please be more precise. You know, don't let the mind stay superficial. It's like that image I gave the other night from Sada Pandita of the cork bobbing on the top of the pond, and it just bobs around so it can't see anything. <clears throat> you can't sink to the bottom so you need the mindfulness to be like a stone that will drop down to the bottom of the lake so it can penetrate within the experience and start to see clearly um, and Another characteristic is to keep the object in view and uh, to keep the object in view or in front of you and um, they give a quite an interesting uh, image for this one, you know. Which I'm, I'm sure this didn't come from the time of the Buddha. It must have come from the Burmese somewhere. Uh, but it says uh, keeping the object in view is like a football player who is going to be kicking a goal at the goalpost, and so he lines up the ball or she, I don't know if they ladies play football here, but they do in Australia. They line the ball up, and they watch the ball every moment of the way till it goes over the post or it misses the post. But their eyes and their mind are just watching what's going on. And I think that that's actually a great uh, image, isn't it? That's what it's like. You watch, and it's just kicking the ball and it's going through the goal, something like that. So they use that, which I thought was quite interesting. In Burma, they're uh, soccer crazy, so they're probably using that. Um. Now the function, well those are some of the characteristics of mindfulness. You know, the non-superficiality, uh, the non-floating around like a cork on top of the, of the pond, Um, keeping the object in view, so you can see it to the end. And its function is to uh, gain insight, is to comprehend uh, the characteristics of this human existence, or all existence really. And this is rather important to understand, uh, because it's really the crux of vipassana meditation, but not easily understood. I've mentioned it on a few occasions now. But what the Buddha discovered, as the Buddha was sitting in meditation under the Bodhi tree in India, he was searching for, if you like, uh, the cause of suffering and the meaning of life. And he needed to understand this human existence and how the world functions. And he said that the world, on an ultimate level, (laughs) functions with three characteristics it functions with descent with the uh, what's the word I'm looking for Um, the characteristic of impermanence that because of not being able to see clearly we don't see the rapid nature of change we think things are permanent we think things are going to stay the same we think that things are solid I mentioned the other night this pālī term, Michaditi of creating wrong view. And this is part of wrong view, Is thinking that everything is solid. But the Buddha, through his own knowledge, his meditative knowledge, was able to see clearly, oh, everything in this mind and this body, and everything that I come in contact, is changing, you know, very rapidly. And he discovered that, as we go along the meditative process, that one can actually experience this for oneself, you start to see the dissolving nature of anything you come in contact with with a sight, a sound, a taste, a smell, a touch the physical body the thoughts, the emotions you start to see this rapid nature of change and so it breaks down in the mind the illusion of solidity And even some people will start to look at the outside, the external, the flowers and trees and etc., etc., and they'll start to see the breakdown of what we consider to be solid. Something like that. I don't want to go too much into it, but are you getting the gist of this? Always remember that this teaching is on the two levels of conceptual and ultimate. And the Buddha was concerned with the ultimate level, of understanding how this world actually is. He called it the Paramatas, the ultimate reality of things. And we can experience this in our meditation practice, and it's very liberating for the mind. Um, And he also the other two characteristics, of course, are to do with the unsatisfactory nature of this particular situation. Right, that everything is changing, but still we don't see it. So what arises in the mind? Clinging and craving, the cause of suffering. So we're our own worst enemies. We create our own suffering because of clinging and craving, because we don't see the true nature of things, because we don't see the uh, true nature of things. And the third one is is to overcome our wrong view or delusion or our illusion in regard to permanency and seeing how the world actually is. Now, this is the function of mindfulness because mindfulness can put you on the spot where you can penetrate down like the stone on the lake and look and see clearly and I think there may have been even moments even for the newer people to meditation where there may have been a moment where the mind is so focused on an object that suddenly it becomes clear and you can feel the steadiness that comes into the mind and as you mature more in the practice that steadiness increases and it's suddenly something like if you look at something externally you know if your mind is quite concentrated there's something you might be particularly interested in interest is one of the factors that develops actually in meditation practice one of the seven factors of enlightenment you were describing some of you that you were doing walking meditation and at the end of the walking meditation you would stop and the mind was quite still quite quiet You had this urge to look at the Buddha image, for example, or a tree. And then you start to look at the Buddha image. And um, for the moment it's just a Buddha image. But if you keep looking, what happens? You start to see, you have a different perception of what you're looking at. Suddenly you're seeing the grey colour or the stone colour. Suddenly you're seeing the shape of the body. Suddenly you're seeing the shape of the eyes, the color of the eyes. You know, you're starting to see the form of the Buddha, and then that form starts to break up. It's really, Have you had that experience before? It's quite interesting. You know, so your whole perception of what you're looking at actually changes. So something like that is how this works. Uh, mindfulness also has another uh, wonderful function and that it brings to us face to face uh, with the uh, destructive emotions that can arise in the mind mindfulness is not something that runs away from anything mindfulness is not a suppressant but it's an opener up to start to look clearly at the uh... mental irritations the destructive emotions the negative tendencies that come into the mind and we all know that we spend most of our day in some kind of positive or mental state and mindfulness will be able to let us come very close uh, to the object for example when anger's in the mind we can be there for it but in a different way now, you know, we, do, we, we can be there, resentment comes in you know, we can be there in a different way We can be there in a way that's not reactive, but is watching and noticing and seeing the characteristic. It changes. Everything changes. And so you start to see this. So it's very helpful in dealing with the emotional aspects of life as we go through the day-to-day situations that we encounter. Uh, Very useful for that. And if you try it, you will see that that's the case. Um, It's also said that mindfulness acts as a guard to the mind. It protects the mind. So when the unwholesome kalesas, or defilements, as I mentioned, come into the mind, then mindfulness is there and gives you space. Gives you space. But one of the things I particularly noticed was the space it gave you before you reacted, you know, with um, with your uh, thoughts or your speech or your actions. It gave you the space just to step back a little bit. You know, it was like a red light coming up in the mind, and so you had that moment, and you didn't buy into it. You know, you didn't react in some way that was going to engender harsh speech or insulting speech or physical action against someone you had that moment of clarity and that's what mindfulness one of the functions of mindfulness it gives you it protects us like a guard standing at the gate watching who's coming in and out something like that um. anyway I think that's enough for tonight on that. So what we need to keep in mind in regard to mindfulness and why I wanted to bring this up tonight was it is the most important aspect for us because it's what we need to develop and cultivate and the reason we need to, I use this word, cultivate and develop is because in Buddhist psychology mindfulness is not uh, a mental factor that arises in each moment of consciousness you know they talk about in uh, buddhist uh, psychology buddhist abhi there's fifty two mental factors that come into the mind Uh, there's uh, a number of wholesome, there's a number of unwholesome and there's seven that are universal that are there with every moment of the arising of consciousness but mindfulness is not one of those So mindfulness has to be worked at. It's like planting a seed in the ground, but it's not going to grow unless you give it uh, sunshine and water and nutriment and lots of fertilizer, etc., etc., etc. It's just not going to happen. It's something that we need to work at. It's why we need to come to the meditation center or we need to practice in our daily life to make sure that we're keeping the mindfulness flourishing keeping it in good health because if you can cultivate this mindfulness and grow it into a beautiful strong tree it will turn out to be your greatest friend and ally it will be your greatest friend and ally it will mindfulness will allow you uh, to live in a harmonious and peaceful way in the world with yourself and with other people because of its nature, its nature is non-judgmental. Its nature is just objective, watching what comes, watching what goes, not getting caught up in I, me, and mine. So how can there be conflict? It's impossible. It's not going to happen when the mind is totally mindful of every every, uh, every situation that arises through the sense doors. So the whole training in Satipatthana, in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, is like planting a seed and then putting all the good things on it to make it grow strong. If we don't, then because mindfulness is not a factor that arises in every moment of consciousness, it will wither and die. And we don't want that. And we want our minds to be clear and peaceful and calm and to be able to live in the world with whatever we happen to be doing in a harmonious way and it does not mean when I say that this and I think this question came up a little bit that one has to run off and become a monk or a nun or live in a monastery it just means that we can live harmoniously in the world with whatever situation we find ourselves with depending on our karma something like this and that's important um, so once again I apologise it'll have to be a six month retreat next time <laughs> <laughs> I still got all these pages every night i come back and i said say what happened to all those pages you know God <laughs> but um, anyway I'd like to finish uh, tonight before I Swap beds with Pat there. <laughs> See, I had a lot of craving for that <laughs> Yeah, you know, like looking. The side came to the airbase, craving a feeling, a craving arose. Contact came. Oh, Pat, could you get out of the way? <laughs> I'm coming down here. <laughs>
1: but there is something
0: that I said I would do this morning. I haven't done it so I'm going to do it for Keith's sake that's if I can find it and haven't left it I'm sure I brought it with me there it is it. it's uh, what the Buddha from the Buddha's teachings on the hindrances okay but I need to excuse me <laughs> I wonder how these anchor men do that I guess they have a commercial break, yeah, don't they? Break. Right. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: How long has the retreat got to go? <laughs> In the beginning of this uh, talk by Uh, a Burmese monk who lived in uh, England. Uh, He was a wonderful monk. I I met him on a few occasions and he was absolutely beautiful. He says, while practicing Vipassana, however, you should not ignore any hindrance that takes, uh, but take it as a meditation object. Uh, You must be aware of precisely from moment to moment because your awareness is so precise, the hindrance cannot that's a good line. As I mentioned earlier, the precision of your noting is important um, because once the mindfulness is on it, there's no way it can stay it has, because you'll see the dissolving nature of the hindrance. A Brahman by the name of Sangarava once asked the Buddha about the difficulty he sometimes had in memorizing mantras. The Buddha replied, Look, Brahman, here is a vessel full of water. If the water were mixed with blue or red dye, one could not see one's reflection in it, even with the best of eyesight. Likewise, one whose mind is tainted by craving and lust cannot see reality. Whereas one can, if the mind is free from such taints. Again, Brahman, And that's the first hindrance, uh, the uh, craving mind, sensual desire mind. Again, Brahman, if this water is boiling and bubbling, good eyesight is of no avail to see one's reflection in the water. In the same way, if the mind is full of anger and hatred, then one cannot see reality, yet yet can when free from such taints. It's the second hindrance that arises ill-will and anger. I should put my finger on here. Again, Brahman, if the water is covered with mossy plants, even with good eyesight, one cannot see one's reflection in the water. Likewise, if the mind is overwhelmed with sloth and torpor, one cannot see reality. Sloth and torpor. We've all experienced that here, so the Buddha points out. Again, Brahman, if the water is shaken and swirled around, one cannot see one's reflection in the water. So with a mind troubled by agitation and worry, one cannot see reality. Finally, Brahman, if this vessel is put in a dark place, the best of eyesight cannot make one see a reflection in the water. Likewise, if one's mind is affected by doubt and perplexity, then one cannot understand reality. Therefore, Brahman, if your mind is affected by the five hindrances of lust, anger, sloth and torpor, agitation and worry and doubt, it will take you many months and even years to learn a mantra by heart. But when the mind is free from these hindrances, it will not be difficult for you to learn the mantra that you hear in a short time. So the Buddha is pointing out here, which is why it's so important to remember and to be able to recognize when these hindrances come into the mind, um, How the importance of being mindful of them and not getting caught up in them. Tomorrow morning it's test time. Gold star for those that get the five. <laughs> you can miss one sitting. Yeah. I love that story and they have, it's said that in the time of the Buddha that the, a lot of the um, teachings that were given by the Buddha that he had a very poetic nature and so what some of the writing is so uh, beautiful and some of the tibetan teachings are also beautiful aren't they? Have you read any of those? Um, I'm sure Pat has but I've just recently come across uh, some of them and I've been quite uh, enthralled by uh, the prose that they use to describe all these uh, experiences in Dhamma it's really quite beautiful actually yeah. and so something like that is. To the point and succinct, but very beautiful in its uh, rendition. You know, I think it gives a good feeling for, uh, you know, how the mind actually is when it's in those states—boiling, shaking, stirring. You know, it uses all of these this uh, terminology, and we do feel all of that when we're in those states, don't we? You know, we're agitated. We feel stirred up, stormy. You know, can't, can't. Um, do things correctly something like that Um, anyway um, I hope that was of some interest to you and I hope more than anything that you will uh, remember uh, what the Satipatthana the four foundations of mindfulness uh, of the body, the sensations the sensations and feelings the mind and the uh, mental objects or mental phenomena And if we have time, I'll have some more detail on those so you can take that home with you and uh, remember it as well. So for now though, may you be happy and peaceful and dive to the depth of the Dharma. Thank you. So once, once again, I've
1: gone over. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.